He's in Jerusalem, and there has been a lot of controversy around him, and the Jews, uh, uh, as well as the, uh, sorry, the Pharisees, as well as the Herodians, and the other Sadducees are seeking to kill Jesus, particularly because of his, his controversial act when he healed a lame man on the Sabbath, and then told that man to go walk into town, carry a mat, and uh, show off to everybody the great work that God has done in your life. And the people were very, the Pharisees were very angry that Jesus did a work on the Sabbath because only God is allowed to do his work on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, well, that's not a problem. I'm God. That's perfectly fine with me. All the more, of course, they wanted to kill and destroy him. And then he turns up to, uh, in the next uh, 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 occurrence in chapter 7, he then turns up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the most populous, apparently, history tells us, at this time in, G- in, in history, in Jesus' time, this was the most popular of the three big, well-attended festivals in Jerusalem. And this is when all the rural folk would come into Jerusalem, upward of 900,000 men, we're told. So uh, uh, the the population would swell to well over 1.3 million people in Jerusalem. The rural folk would come in and set up tents in the street. Uh, the, The town folk and the city dwellers would set up tents on their roof, and thereby they would remember how they lived in tents in the wilderness, and God saved, sustained, and spared them. And Jesus comes into this uh, uh, festival time, and he's going around, and John chapter 7 tells us that people are, people are gossiping about him, because they know that there's wanted posters up uh, around, uh, around Jerusalem, that the authorities want Jesus, uh, dead or alive, and they're seeking to arrest him and to charge him with all sorts of blasphemy trials. Uh, the people, John chapter 7 tells us, are gossiping because they know the, pe- the, the, the authorities want Jesus, but then he turns up into the festival and he just sets up in the temple and starts preaching and teaching in the open air, and he doesn't get arrested And the people start wondering, is it because the authorities have conspired and they know that he's the Christ? Or they start asking, uh, is this because they're scared of him? Is is actually he not a a criminal at all? He's actually a prophet and they've learned that. They're, They're all wondering why it is that Jesus isn't being arrested and he just goes on and continues preaching in the midst of of his uh, of all of the hostility uh, people are literally walking this would be similar if men were walking around in the back of church with fe- a, a, a federal police uh, jackets on and badges and large nine millimeters on their hips and and they've all got the warrant for past it'd be Vic Pastor Vic's arrest because he's been saying uh, uh, taboo things about about the reign of Christ and about the lordship of of Jesus and here they are they've come to take him away and 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 the and and, and the pastor just keeps on preaching because we don't care. And Spurgeon, when he preached on this, uh, this passage, he, he compared John chapter 7 to a story that came from uh, Will Ferrell. Not Will Ferrell. I don't quote Will Ferrell in sermons. If you don't know who that is, you're lying. But Will Ferrell, one of the reformers in Geneva, as, uh, he was the one who threatened Calvin and said, God wants you to be a preacher. Stay or he'll curse and kill you. And so we have Calvin, the pastor, the preacher that we have now. Well, Will Ferrell, he was preaching and, and as he was uh, seeing reform and and 
conversions and the gospel was taking root, one of the Catholics in town uh, hated him probably almost as much as the Jews hated Jesus. One of the weeks prior, he had seen Catholics walking through town with a little statue of Jesus, and he jumped out from the bush, toppled her over the bridge into the water, and, uh, and ran off, and he was beaten up by priests. So this is the kind of guy Will Ferrell was, and as he's preaching in the gallery behind him from sort of the choir section, if you've seen those old cathedrals, a man stands out with a small revolver, a 16th century revolver, and points it at his head and says, stop preaching right now. And Wilfrell turns around, looks at him and says, I'm no, I do not fear you or your trinkets. You do what you've come to do, I'll do what I've come to do. He turns around and continues to preach. The man pulls the trigger of the revolver and in the sight of everybody, the bullet blasts through flesh and explodes the gunman's own hand. Well, Pharrell went unscathed. This is what it's like for Jesus. He's, he's, he's being surrounded and sniped out and scoped out and there's, there's men in the alleys with Jesus' name and there's a price on his head, but he just keeps on preaching publicly. And at the last day of the festival, verse 37 tells us this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, so, so one of the high days, the Sabbath day, when everybody would come and gather, and one of the ceremonies they would go through is that the high priest would take a golden vase or bucket, and they would go to the pool of Siloam, just where Jesus had healed the man a few weeks prior, and he dips some of that healing water and walks into the, into the temple arena and then up into the temple itself, and he goes into the, the large court of the temple and pours out this water and this ceremony, and, and the Levites walk around and sing and praise, and they sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, the, the Hallel, the praise songs to God. And as they do that, the, the people would chant Isaiah 12 verse 3, you shall come and draw from the wells of salvation and have joy. So they would chant. So with this as the background, and with that occurring, the big water pouring ceremony occurring at this enormously popular uh, uh, festival at the height of Israel's calendar, Jesus, verse 37 tells us, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And hear the desperation in the way that John says, he doesn't just preach, he doesn't just yell, he cries out. The next time he sees most of these people will be the festival that they gather to chant for his crucifixion. He stands and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. May God bless this cry of Jesus Christ in our midst tonight. Jesus, in his calling, invites literally anybody. One of the emphasis that we've been uh, making as we go through the invitations of Jesus is the openness and the intensity with which he calls people to himself. That when he, he's first, uh, the, the first one that we started out with, come all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He calls to all who hunger to come and eat him the bread of life. He, he calls anybody to come to him. And this is, again, what he's doing. He's emphasizing the anybody, the openness. Now, we know and we understand the exclusivity of Christ, that no one can or will be saved without Christ. There's no noble savage. There's no people, uh, I, I just listened to one well-known 
Presbyterian New York pastor answering the question in, in sort of this secular uh, scenario where people were asking the hard questions. And do you really think that the tribesmen that never heard Jesus deserve to go to hell? And he ummed and he ahed. Well, you know, we, we don't know how God will judge everybody. We don't know what's going to happen to everybody. We, 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 but, but, but maybe, 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 yes, they're going to hell. There is no salvation but by and in the name and the knowledge of the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. If you care about that, then go and tell them and let us go. But there is no hope outside of Jesus. That is why he is such a glorious hope. But even though Jesus is so exclusive in the sense that only he is saviour, only people in him will be saved from hell. Yet, in his ministry, and this is what we've been trying to understand, that in his ministry, he would make such calls that would be so open and inclusive. That is that while only through Jesus will people be saved, any kind of person and every kind of person will litter the countryside in heaven with a million trillion different testimonies to tell of the different backgrounds and lives and sins that Jesus saved them from. Anybody, he says. If anyone, and here's the prerequisite, here's the if, here's the requirement that makes you somebody that is invited by Jesus. He says, if you thirst, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is what we mean uh, uh, by, by, feel, uh, by thirsty, we mean a feeling of the need for Jesus Christ. People will do People will walk kilometers. People will do anything. I mean, I'm sure you've probably been in a, some kind of situation where you've been desperately thirsting and water was not readily at hand. Maybe not all of us have been uh, 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 deserted in a desert or on an island or lost at sea. I, I don't know each of our stories. I would guess probably not. At least some of us have gone hiking and run out of water. This happened to me when I was 17 going on 18. I decided to take myself on a, I'm an adult now, let's go on a big hike. And my car broke down. Down, my map got lost, I ran out of water because I went to the wrong spot, and I only packed about 500 mils because I was a 17-year-old male, and I, was, uh, I remembered that I'd, I'd watched a Bear Grylls movie like maybe a year before in high school, and so I walked past this cactus, and you know what Bear Grylls does, he gets out his, his saber, I packed plenty of knives, not enough water, and I just hacked the top off of it, put my hand into it, and start eating the moisture that is in the cactus. A pretty desperate move, but something somebody that's thirsty does. Now, my problem was that I wasn't in the Arabian desert like he was, drinking the cactus that stores water like he was. I was drinking prickly pear cactus, meaning that there was fibers and shards all throughout it. And what I put into my mouth felt like fiberglass. My face was on fire for the next four-hour hike. Yeah, I'm that smart. But nonetheless, let this teach us, water makes us desperate. Water that thirst makes us desperate for water is what I mean. And, and Jesus, when he says, if anybody thirsts, he's meaning. Is anybody feeling the requirement, the thirst, the, the need for something that you cannot well up within you? Do you need that? Do you feel the burn, feel the desire and the desperation? Then Jesus is for you. Jesus is speaking of thirst here. There is, a, is there in you a thirst to desire the wrath to come? You may feel like even as you sit here and go, you know, I've, I've sat in sermons before or I've called myself a Christian or, why, or maybe you are a Christian and you've wondered this yourself. What if my motives to come to Jesus are not pure enough? 
And, and the great glorious thing is that you don't need the pure motives to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, get purified, and then your motives start to matter. Just come to Jesus. What, it, it, you may feel like, is it not selfish or self-preservation that I want to flee from the wrath to come? Or maybe only a, a small amount, but God uses that as a motivation. There is wrath to come. You ought to flee it in Christ. Do you feel the desire to escape the wrath to come? Do you feel the weight of your conscience and it keeps you up at night? Or that, or that emotionally strains you so desperately that you are frequently sleeping in, sleeping early? Does this guilt drive you to the bottle or to pornography or to lovers or to overspending or overworking or just to tears continually? Do you have a dissatisfaction with the world and everything it offers? Maybe you're in plenty, and you have plenty, and there's a huge bank account of yours and a huge bank account of your parents that will back you up anyway, and then a huge bank account of grandparents that sooner or later will pass away, and they will pass a lot to you, and you just don't have need to fear uh, wealth. You have plenty of that. And in fact, you look around you and you know that even if you make more than $40,000 in Australia a year, you are uh, of the, the, the top 5% of all of the people to, uh, to, to live in the world right now as far as wealth goes. And in fact, you're the top 1% of the world that has ever lived. <laughs> Welcome to the top 1%. That's, that's just about all of us. But you, you don't just make $40,000. You, you have plenty and you have the trinkets and you have a great car and a good house and things that other people would live and die to try and get and yet with all the world at your fingertips in the greatest century that man has ever lived in, when you can travel almost to the moon, to, the, to space at least, or to any area of the globe in just a few hours, yet do you feel the dissatisfaction of everything the world puts at your feet? Everything that is within grasp still feels like it turns to sand in your hand. Or maybe it's not wealth that the world has offered to you, it's all of its so-called wisdom. And you are a new ager, or you have uh, drunk in the skepticism and the atheism and the materialism and the secularism of, of the Hitchens and the Dawkins and the, the atheists that put out such good. And, and you sit there and it all sounds so very logical, and yet on your bed at night you cannot escape the question, why then do I still desire eternity? Why then do I still, if I'm just an evolved ape-like thing, a bit of soup that became a something, grew into an amoeba, crawled out of the earth, if I'm just a great-great-grandson of something that evolved from nothing and non-biological gave birth to, if, I'm just, if we're all just that matter in motion and fizzling chemicals in flesh and self-consciousness is just, a, just an illusion, then why, oh, why? Do I have this guilt? How can this guilt be escaped? And so you have all that the world might offer you in terms of an excusing philosophy and wisdom that, that takes you away from the need to thirst for Jesus, but yet you still feel the thirst. To you, Jesus says, come to me. The thirst that he speaks about is those who taste the bitterness of sin. The, the, the burn of regret. It was over the, the latest uh, Christmas season that a, a young child in uh, my extended family was excited to have a glow stick, excited to go to bed with a glow stick, excited to chew on the glow stick, and then appalled to scream in the middle of the night as the glow stick exploded in their mouth, and they were certain they were going to die because glowing green goo was coming forth from their mouth. Uh, horror, fear, regret, and a taste of sour bitterness, and so it is with sin. 
maybe excited. You think that this is, this is everything that you wanted to do when you grow up. You got your freedom. You taste the world. The people offer it to you. The ads are very enticing. Your friends say it's great. And yet within you, the thirst as it's manifesting in you is a regret and a sourness and a bitterness as sin infests your spiritual experience. And you wish for cleansing and purity. Jesus says anyone, anyone who feels any number of those things, you're thirsting and he is the water, he is the river that will quench you and cleanse you and make you pure, come to him. But there is that condition, is there? Because we do know that not everybody does thirst. You can be, I've been a nurse, I've seen it in the ER, in the ICU room, people can be dying of thirst but not experience thirst. It is that their faculty is so twisted or their mind is so warped or they are in so much trauma they don't want water or they can't take water. What they need is something to hydrate them but they will throw it up immediately. There are people spiritually just like that. There are people who, uh, this is a, an occasion that happens often and sea rescuers will tell you this, they often find people in life rafts dead, rotten from the inside out because they started to drink the ocean water. That as they, they were floating in the ocean and, and they were dying of thirst and they realized, I'm surrounded by water. Why die of thirst? And so they begin to fill themselves with salt water, only increasing their thirst physiologically, but in their experience, in their minds, they're, they're feeling, I'm, I'm full. I have all the water I need, but on the inside, their cells are breaking down because of the salt content. And so it is with false religion and new ageism that tells people, you have this desire, let us fill it. Let's fill it with, uh, with spiritualism or with ancestor worship or with angelology or with star signs. Let's, let's, let's reach into that desire for the eternal by filling it with an eternal, endless stream of pointless, poisonous, destructive, fatal salt water. And so people are filling your... And maybe this is you. You've been filling your spirit. You've been filling your experience with all of these things. But honestly, you are not... The, you are not actually quenched. These are the fools. These are the insane or these are the actively dying, those whose false religion or progressive views or new age-ism or even the self-righteousness fits this salt water drinking perfectly. You, you might say, I'm thirsty. I filled myself with religion and good deeds and I stopped drinking and I haven't slept with almost anyone and I look better now. I've been hitting the gym and I've been encompassing more Western traditional Judeo-Christian values and now I'm, I'm, I'm more traditional and conservative and yet you are still thirsting. You don't know why. You thought you filled that need but it was self-righteousness. You're in fact more close to death by thirst now than you ever were and Jesus says, come to me. Know your thirst which some don't, but pray for, an, for a recognition of your thirst. And once you feel the slightest inkling of needing Jesus, that's enough. Run to him, come to him, and drink of his life. And he says, come and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. If anybody feels his need for me, let him come and drink. Let them come to me and drink. What does he mean by come and drink? Come to me and drink. The idea of drinking which is the same as the idea of coming to him for that drink as one must do to a source of water. You must approach it first and then, and then drink it. The idea is, is very visibly taken in. It's very visibly easily accessible. That in order to drink something, you must take it to yourself 
and then take it into yourself with the implicit trust that it is going to do good for you and quench the thirst that you have. Jesus' invitation is this. If you feel your thirst spiritually, then come to me and hope and have faith and trust that what I provide and what I offer and who I am can quench those needs within you. That's what Jesus is inviting. That's what he's saying. Come to me and drink. You have uh, uh, thirst requires water. The properties, the characteristics of water on every level are extremely fitting to quench thirst. We know that. And so Jesus is using this very simple, basic, you know this before you know any science, water cures thirst. And so Jesus is saying, I am to spiritual thirst what water is to physical thirst. Everything about me has been designed by God and put into flesh. Everything about me is perfectly fitting to be able to quench your spiritual thirst. Because at the heart of your spiritual thirst is an estrangement from God, is a separation from God since the fall in Adam, is an experience of being drawn away from God. And you experience that in your lostness, in your darkness, in your hunger, and in your thirst. You are far removed from your life source, from your, from your God, your creator, God himself. And Jesus says, I am God in the flesh, come to you, so you now come to me and you experience reconciliation to God. At the heart of our thirst is a recognition that wrath awaits us, that our sin deserves punishment, and that God's anger hangs over us. And Jesus says, I have come in the flesh to die on the cross as an atonement for sin so that everything, the thirst within you, fears about that judgment can be wiped clean. It is all taken by me. I have died in your place. You are therefore able to have that thirst quenched. At the heart of our thirst is also a need for purity. Like, like a child who's bitten down onto glow stick and feels, feels the, the, hopefully non-toxic, uh, juices in and under the tongue and in the gums and leaking down the back of the throat as somebody needs to gag or cough or spit or vomit or the, the medics might need to pump uh, the guts to get all of the contents out and you need to rinse your mouth and have the medicine required and put a mint in afterwards to cleanse your palate. That precise thing is what Jesus also offers. But he doesn't just live for you, die for you, rise again and say you're cleared, but also that you are cleaned. He doesn't just say that you are pardoned now and forgiven and don't worry about the accounts, I've sorted it out. He also says that in your very experience, you will have and you will, you, you will be within the experience of clean, of cleansed, of washed. And this is what he means by the water coming into you and not just not just going in and quenching thirst, but also cleansing your whole body. We, we've all had the friend that did the juice detox, right? You've all had the friend that, that, that swears by the tea detox that you just have to pay a very small monthly amount for on Instagram, and they swear it's real, and they lose weight because they are literally anorexic now. It's not a secret. That's not a, not a detox. That's suicide. So, so, here they are. so we've all had friends that do the detox. We know the process of detox. Maybe you've just known after Christmas you do four days, nothing but water, and you feel great afterwards. So also, we need the spiritual detox, don't we? We need the, the water of Christ not only to quench our thirst, but also take away the toxins that sin has left so deeply ingrained down to a cellular level in our spirit. And this Jesus offers, because he doesn't just say, 
that your thirst will be solved. In verse 38, he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, so again, this is what coming and drinking means, believing upon Jesus and trusting your soul to him. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he spoke about the spirit, verse 39 says, whom those who believed in him were to receive, but as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is saying, not only do you receive pardon, not only do you receive the thirst and satisfaction, uh, the, the thirst satisfied and quenched from Jesus, but you also become a whole new person. You become yourself a spring of living water. So that not only did the water come to you, but it also starts coming from you. But what's the difference between drinking and many other things that pass for belief? Do you know that you can, you can be a scientist that studies water and in the midst of your shift in the lab, as you are looking at it under the microscope, as you're mixing it up with other things, you can still die of thirst. There are many Christians who have died, many so-called Christians or in the church there are many people who would have called themselves Christians who die of thirst while studying Jesus. And they, they know everything they think there is to know. They at least know everything more than other people. They love the stories. They grew up in church. They became fanatics. They were obsessed about learning the Bible. They know the archaeology. They can tell you all of the, the prophecies fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. They know, the, they know the promises. They can define the covenants. They know it all. They can define faith. They can define believing. They can define Jesus, his atonement, his three offices, everything. But they have not drunk. They are studying the water, but Jesus says, drink me in. Take my benefits into yourself because you feel thirst, not just intrigue. How many people come to Jesus because he's intriguing, he's interesting, he's a, he's a spectacle, but they do not take him into themselves by faith. Drinking is also more than merely swimming. You know that some people die of thirst or die of drowning, but die of thirst even while swimming in fresh water. You can do that. If you refuse to swallow the water, you can die of thirst within the water. Because some people will try and baptize their lives. And I use that word uh, 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 as a pun. They baptize their lives. They swim in Christian Jesus-themed experiences. So maybe they literally get baptized. Or they go to the conference and meet Jesus and have a touching of the Holy Spirit or have friends who are so passionate and they follow them and, and, and they go to the evangelism and they, they try, maybe it's the healings or maybe it's the seminary or whatever it is. They go and they chase all of the experiences of Jesus and they go and they, 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 they go to church and they partake in communion and they love the singing, they, they serve, they're, they're right here and all the time they're hearing the gospel be preached to them and they're just swimming in it. But Jesus, Jesus didn't say, get wet. Jesus didn't say, divulge yourself. Jesus didn't say, jump into the deluge. In this instance, he says, drink. Swimming doesn't help thirst. In fact, there's a way to, to swim that increases your thirst. And again, you can die of thirst while swimming in the water of life. It is meant to be drunk by belief into Jesus. Or you can sprinkle. That is that you can, you can look around even right now as we had a few dry weeks or months and the grass was brown and the trees were dying and, and then we have just a few storms and everything's just spruced up with life and blazing green and I love Queensland. Some people try and do that with their spiritual life. They say, gee, water's really good, isn't it? 
Look what water does to other people's lives. It brings life, it makes them happier, it gives them more satisfaction. These Christians have something going on. And so they get Jesus and they start to sprinkle biblical wisdom and church attendance and conservative values and good Christian friends and Bible verses and prayers here and there all throughout their life to try and spruce spruce it up with life all the while not drinking. Jesus is saying that in this image, as the life-giving water, you must drink. And he's standing. This is, this is for some of us here. Jesus is standing at a temple among people that he has known for years, decades, that he grew up with. He's standing among people that he has been preaching to for three years. He is standing among people that have been chasing to kill him and others who work for the temple. In other words, he's speaking to people who we might assume it is just way too late for them to come. It's way too, they've made converts to the old system. They're already invested far too heavily in this old Judaism. It's just not for them, this invitation to come, but it is. This means that if you're the, the father of adult Christian children and you realize now I'm not myself converted, or you've already been baptized and there was a whole rigmarole about it and everybody congratulated you, but you realize I have never truly been converted. Or or you're a spouse of a Christian and you think this would be quite a drama and quite an embarrassment to come forward and and tell them I've never been converted, but you need to be converted by drinking of the water of life. There's no other thing that substitutes. And to anybody, the word is that there is nothing else that disqualifies. If you feel your thirst, you realize you've never taken this water into yourself, to you, Jesus demands, commands, and invites with all authority. Come to me and drink. You have the need. You are the dying one. Cry to the Lord and say to him, Jesus, you said come to you. Cry to him. Say to him, I come to you, Jesus. You said to come. I thirst and I need you and I trust in you to give me life, whatever that looks like, whatever that means. That's all you need to be able to do, to come to Jesus, believe in him and drink of his life. There's a song that we sing that I've referenced multiple times because of its themes of the free offer of the gospel. And it says, let not your conscience make you linger. Don't let your conscience keep reminding you how guilty you are, how how ill-fit you are, how unsavable you are, how damned you are, and so make you linger back from coming to to the waters. Jesus is saying, if your conscience tells you that, then you're the sort of person this water is meant to quench for. Come, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't sit down there and fondly dream of, well, one day I'll be fit to come. You know, I'll be be ready to rise up and walk to Jesus. Like the lame man who was healed by him, all you can do is ask. You'll never have your legs back. You'll never have your spiritual fitness. You'll never have a, 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 a health within yourself to come to him. The only fitness that he requires, we hear in the next verse, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. If you feel your need... And there's a thousand excuses why you shouldn't come or wouldn't come or probably won't be wanted to come. If you feel your need of him, then come. You are the person that this water is meant to satisfy. And we're told then that whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. The exact scripture, this gets difficult, because the exact scripture that Jesus seems to quote doesn't exist. Jesus is not wrong. Jesus is not misquoting scripture. It's simply that he, 
like any good pastor, just, just throws out a reference to a large swath of Old Testament scriptures and doesn't mean to actually quote one. So when he says, as the scripture has said, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water, we sort of asked, what, what's the water and who's it flowing out of and which passage in context are you even referring to? And we don't know definitely or precisely, but we know because of John's own commentary by the Holy Spirit in the next verse, the water that Jesus was speaking of that comes into us and then erupts up out of us is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Maybe he was referring to Isaiah 58 verse 11. Where, where Isaiah prophesied that the spiritually scorched places will become life-giving gardens and streams. Here's what Isaiah 58.11 says. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The image of not just that he'll give you water, but he'll give you so much water, you'll become the source of life-giving water for others. Or maybe he meant uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 1 through 9, when, when water seems to be coming out of the very heart of the temple. Maybe it's that. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that there's at least heavily this reference, that, the, the, that Ezekiel foresaw that I had this vision where he's at the temple and there's water leaking out of the back Pipeways, but there is no pipes in the temple. So where's this water coming from? And then he goes on the outside of the wall of the temple, and there it is. It's still, it's still streaming out. And then he walks a thousand cubits out, and there it's not trickling anymore. It's ankle deep. And then another thousand cubits out. It's not ankle deep. It's a, it's a gushing waterway, and it's knee deep. Then further, it's waist deep. And then further down, the Lord shows him that it's a, it's a ravine that cannot be crossed and that is streaming out to the east and streaming out to the west. Every ocean that it touches, it turns into fresh water. Every nation it goes into, it, it plants and gives life to trees and fruits and healing and peace and prosperity. And everybody that touches it is healed. What's this a picture of? This is a picture of the Spirit coming forth from the heart of Christ in the gospel that will go throughout the nations and give gospel life to whoever believes. Or was it uh, Zechariah who in 14 verse 8 was prophesying the day of the Messiah, either his first or second coming, and he says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Isaiah 12, verse 3, which people were just singing in Jesus' midst as he preaches this. With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. Or is it Isaiah 55, verse 1? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. In, in some way, as I've already said, it's all of them. Jesus is taking this theme of the Old Testament prophets that says that there will one day come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, come to the people of God, such a stream of life that anybody that partakes of it will have joy, salvation, and their thirst quenched. And Jesus is that spirit-giving source of life. Rightly then, does he tell the Samaritan woman in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water that I give sorry, of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. That's biology, we know how that works. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him 
a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That means that for us, if we call ourselves Christians, it is not merely enough to say, have you come and have you believed, full stop. But then to test our claim of having come to Jesus, to test our claim to having drunk of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can ask this question, are you a spring of eternal life to others? That is, not only have you drunk and been satisfied, but now from your own heart and from your own spirit, does the desire for holiness and love and righteousness come? And does that desire have satisfaction in the sense that God gives to you holy life and gives to you an increased prayer habit and gives to you an understanding of the Bible and gives to you a victory over sin? Have you seen this in your life? That where you are a scorched, dry uh, tumbleweed, thorn-infested desert ground, you are now bit by bit, not because of you, but because of Christ's spirit in you. Is there plantation, is there, is there plants, is there fruit, is there trees growing up out of the power that God has given you in your new birth? And if not, you did not come to Jesus and you did not drink his life. Because otherwise that life would be becoming a glorious spring within you. Is there holiness in your life? Is the gospel, this is an important way, that the water goes forth to the nations and that the stream finds new people to save and, and that the, the spring of water coming out of your heart is dispensed? Are you speaking the gospel with your lips? At opportunities, are you speaking this life-giving water out, out of your words? Are you preaching the gospel to others in tract or online or in conversation or in phone calls in any way you can? That is how the water of life is sprung. Do you... Do you have a joy and a sweetness bubbling up out of you? What does your family think of you? A, a joy and a sweetness or an anger and a bitterness and a continual hatred and a, and a sourness around you? Man, what, is your, what do your family think about your spiritual presence in the home? What would your friends say? Are you a complainer and a griper and a grinder with like sand under your fingernails or, or are you a source of joy? That as people spend time with you, they walk away thinking, I love God more. I love Jesus more. They were well for me. My soul was thirsty. I, 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 I drew up water from their encouragement and I feel more satisfied now. The service of your life. As the river of life of Jesus and his spirit runs through you, do you channel your life, your resources and energy into the extension and expansion of the kingdom? Into building up the church and local churches? Into proclaiming the gospel and supporting its ministers and missionaries? Is your life source giving life to others? The question becomes, have you been born again? Have you genuinely been born again? Because there are some people who will get through life sort of on the, the wetness that they can get from other people's springs. Because you can do that. You can be continually doused with water by going from pool to pool and spring to spring and fountain to fountain. And you never have to have within yourself a fountain. You can get through life like that. And you can think, of course I've, I've drunk the water and of course I've, I've got this spring within me. Look at how Christianized my life is. I'm surrounded by these Christian people. But, but what if those were all away? What if you were plucked up like Paul and thrown in prison without a Christian support? How would your faith do then? Is there any scripture in your own heart and mind that would be able to sustain your life then? 
Is there any joy that is upward bubbling and not just sort of borrowed and plucked from other people's encouragements? That, that do you have in yourself the sustenance of the Spirit giving life? If you were, if this church, Lord forbid, was to be closed down, flattened, all killed, or, or you transplanted out to a regional area, and you're not surrounded with your Christian friends, and, and the preaching here is not accessible to you, or, or maybe somewhere else, and, and you're out in a dry land, will you then still even be and maintain your profession of a Christian? Or would you just dry out because there's only so much stores from other people's Christian life that you can borrow as your own? Some people jump from puddle to puddle in the Christian life. This might be, for some people, it's, it's experience to experience. The encounter conference, the God's power conference, the youth camp, the, the volunteering on the youth camp, the, the young adults camp. The, 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 and they go from experience of God to experience of God because they, they need to, to borrow from those experiences some water because there is not within themselves that spiritual life which is able to receive life from the word. On the converse, sometimes people go from crisis to crisis. And it's like, well, I, I crashed my car and nearly died and, I was, and then I was serious about Jesus and then I didn't pay a second thought basically except for how much my wife or my husband or somebody around me begged me to read the Bible. And then my wife almost left me. Or then my husband almost left me. Or then my child died. Or, or then something, and then I was serious about God for a bit for a moment and here they are, puddle to puddle to puddle. And so they can look over the last 10 years of their life and say, yes, in my substance addiction and in my near divorce and then in my divorce and then in the death of a loved one and then in all these things, I was close to Jesus, wasn't I? Or you're just so afraid of losing religion, you've kept him involved enough that you've kept your feet in puddle to puddle to puddle. But the life source is not truly within you. Take away those crises and is there any religion, any true Christianity left in your soul? We cannot substitute anything for the coming to Jesus and the drinking of his life and being sure that in doing so, we have not just been quenched in our spiritual thirst, but we've also been born again and remade so that we become a spring of life to the glory of God. We must be born again. And to Christian, people who claim themselves Christians, the question becomes, are you evidently under this life-giving effect of the Spirit? This is a great time for reflection, the end of the year. Think back on New Year's last year. Think back on that foggy, vague phase between Christmas and New Year's last year. I bet you made resolutions and you thought certain things would change and you'd make certain changes. Think back on that. Are you at all any different or just as thirsty, lost, and lifeless with a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more experience? Friends, do we look back and realize that that, that bubbling spring has surely been growing and in my life I see more righteousness, more holiness, more love for God's people, more love for God. Has that occurred to you? Then we can be sure that we are those born of God. But if you are knowingly lost or you're recognizing right now that you've a, you're a false convert and have been for a long time, do you feel your thirst? What do you need to do to be saved? Merely this, recognize that thirst within you and call on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That is all. Let's pray. God, in Jesus, there is a well of life-giving water that can quench trillions of worlds of sinners who feel their need. There will never be any 
amount of sin or any amount of thirst or any amount of people who come that will ever drain dry the mercy, the grace, and the life-giving power that is in Jesus. We know that he gives of the eternal spirit. He gives of his own eternal infinite righteousness and his own eternal infinite life-giving power. And he gives life to whomever he wishes. Father God, we ask that you would give to those who are lost, those who are lifeless, those who are dry, and those who are thirsting. Give to them, Lord God, the life-giving, quenching power of your spirit through Jesus. Please give to them a knowledge of the gospel, maybe not in every detail, but, but at least to understand that by his death he died for my sin. By his life he lived in my place, and by his presence in heaven right now he invites me to be forgiven. Father God, please give to them a knowledge of the gospel and a grasping of it so that they can bring that cup of salvation to their mouth and drink it in and receive its benefits. Let no one be satisfied or blinded by the devil, Lord God, to continue on in this surrounded by water lifestyle without having fully drinking. Lord, Lord God, please give to people a, an unsettling notion in their soul. Please give to people a desire to, to pray and ask and beg and find salvation, Lord God, because we will have no one in our midst, Lord God. We, we want nobody to go through this life in our church and our family and then wake in hell. We wish, Lord God, that you would give to them life. And to those of us who, who for this, this is a testimony and this is a remembrance and this is a, a message and a reminder of deliverance. We look back, Lord God, on our life before you on our lostness, our dryness, our corruption before you, whether we were religious or not, whether we were the, 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 the son that stayed in the father's house or we were the prodigal, without Jesus, Lord God, we were dry and lifeless. And we thank you that in our desperate thirst, you gave us Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for saving us. We thank you for all your blessings in this last year and trust you, not only for many, many more to come, but we trust you that you will add to our number many, many more souls who find satisfaction and the quench of their souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.